You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny, and not windy Davis today, which is amazing considering what yesterday was like. Crisp and clear, and it's 58 degrees on Wednesday, the 28th of October. The show will broadcast on October 29th. It's going to be sunny today, going up to a high of 76. Two weeks ago, it was in the upper 90s. This week, it's 76. And the low is going to be 43 degrees tonight. So we are making that rapid change down to colder nights. Generally speaking, those of you who live in the Davis area, Sacramento Valley, Northern California, Our first frost in this area is usually around Thanksgiving. It always feels in early October like there's no way we could get to that. Well, we're getting there very rapidly. Not going to have frost anytime soon, but nights in the 40s suggest that some of those more tender plants, you better start thinking about where they're going to go within the next couple of weeks. Thursday, going to be 79 degrees. Thursday night, 43. Friday, 79 degrees. Friday night, 43. Warming up for the weekend, 81 on Saturday, 46 degrees. Saturday night, 82 on Sunday. Monday 82, Tuesday 80, and temperatures at night in the mid-40s. Regrettably, from the standpoint of what the plants need on their roots, no rain on the horizon. It's going to be just so kind it's of... a non-rainy Halloween for a change. That's right. It's going to be upper pre- uh, high pressure ridge and um, nothing in the way of storms coming this way. Looks like the zero rainfall October. I just went ahead and looked at their prediction for uh, the next Three months. There's a bunch of models that they use, the Climate Prediction Center at the National Weather Service. Since we are trending or well into La Nina, remember when we used to talk about that a lot? El Nino, La Nina. La Nina conditions tend to lead to drier conditions in Northern California, almost uh, strongly correlated with dry conditions in the Southwest. They're predicting uh, November, December, January, uh, looks like dry conditions for Texas, Arizona, relatively dry for Southern California, less predictable for Northern California, not signs of a wet winter anyway, as far as that goes. So I'm sure that's not great news, although from a gardening standpoint, it means more sunny days. I guess we can look at the bright side. Why not? <laughs> so if we're looking at the weather with no rain, it's, yeah. it's now the end of October, and a lot of people would be thinking, well, I can turn off my sprinklers, but that's that not good. the case, is it? You need to use some judgment on this. I mean, where days are shorter and temperatures are cooler and the evapotranspiration rate has definitely dropped on most days, but not when that north wind blows. We can be as much as a fifth to a quarter of an inch of water use on a day that the north wind blows. That's more like a summer day. And this is something I go through with people a lot. They're, They're talking about how I've heard that fall is great for planting it is. Temperatures are mild. You don't have to water as much. Well, you might not have to water as much, but we've already in October had three north wind events, as we call them. Southern California, uh, Santa Ana winds down there, same thing. Very dry, very gusty winds in Orange County yesterday. Dry and unfortunately fire weather conditions. 
And those are like summer days in terms of plant water use. So it kind of depends on where you're listening. But for those of us that are affected by what I'm told are called the devil winds in Northern California, Santa Ana winds in Southern California, you may need to water as if it's summer when you first plant something. I've been putting in a lot of vegetables in containers and I'm kind of testing how well different brassicas do in pots and what size is appropriate. I'm not having to water them every day as I would in say July, but I'm having to check them every day. And they're in the, when the north wind was blowing, they did need water each day. Now that we're calmer, my guess is I can go two, three days without having to water them. But keep an eye especially on things in containers. Those of you growing vegetables and raised planters or very large tubs, check that soil every day, even though it may not need water every single day. The dry wind, one day there, it was 5% humidity here. So I always like to just flip over to where I have a, a tab saved for what the weather conditions are in Death Valley. And Death Valley was also 5% humidity. So we were having Death Valley humidity levels here in Davis. And I can tell you that your plants would definitely need you to keep an eye on the watering in that situation. So the seeds that I put in, it's a container, but it's a big container. Yep. And, and I sprinkle some seeds to try and get a winter vegetable garden going. And so I've been carefully sprinkling them every day. Yeah. I don't have to water a lot, just keep the top of the soil dry until, I mean, wet until they yeah. sprout, right? Yeah, you want to water thoroughly when you plant them and then check them each day and sprinkle them each day. And I'm doing the exact same thing, not just with things in containers. I did, I planted a fair area of grass seed on my property. And uh, when the north wind was blowing, I watered in the morning before I left. And when I got home, I watered again. And that was just about right. Each morning should be fine if it isn't a dry, gusty, very low humidity wind. And the grass is coming up very well. A lot of people planting lawns right now. A lot of people planting vegetables from seed. A lot of people planting California poppies and things like that. And you do need to keep a close watch on the watering, especially if we're having this low humidity and a complete lack of cloud cover, complete lack of rainfall. I know in other parts of the country, even if it's not raining, you may be cloudy. Well, not here. I'm looking out at sparkling blue skies from horizon to horizon right now. It's lovely, but you got to keep a close watch on the watering. So it's a no little trickier. smoke, thank goodness. Yeah, no smoke and no, you know, no clouds. It's um, it, it's bright and sunny, which means we're going to have about a 35 degree, 40 degree temperature swing during the course of the day. We're going to be up into the low 80s, they sounding like towards the end of the week, and the low 40s at night. Um, and very low humidities as we get into the, the middle of the afternoon. So you mentioned California poppies, and I just want to remind folks or tell them if they haven't been listeners of the show for a long time, that California poppies are one of those things that have to go on bare dirt. If yeah. you cover them up, they're not going to grow. If you cover them, they'll just lie there and wait. It's really cool in that regard. You know, you scatter your poppy seed and there's brushy cover. Well, it'll just wait for that brushy cover to go away. Could be months or years. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's exposed and the poppies will come up and bloom. But it'll be a little disappointing if you're expecting some bloom this coming year. We told you all to go do a little homework and read about uh, planting poppies. Well, the reason we did that is right now, end of October into November here in Northern California and interior part, you know, everywhere in Southern California, it's a great time to go scatter the seed, but um, that's all I want you to do is scatter the seed, not cover it. If you cover it, it's not going to germinate well. And then you need to water because there's no rain on the horizon. So you need to water each day 
the seedlings come up very quickly. Even with the colder night temperatures, we're still getting very good seed germination because the soil is still quite warm. And so they'll be up in probably seven to 14 days, little tiny wispy things. You know, you can't imagine this little tiny plant is going to ever grow up and be robust enough to hold its own. The thing about poppies in general is they make tap roots very rapidly. If you try to grow them in containers and transplant them out, which I've done many times, you'll find the plant only has two little seedling leaves in the pot and the roots have already hit the bottom of the container. And so you need to, if you're doing that, you need to transplant them out very carefully. They're very fragile and they will transplant fine, but uh, they do get their roots down very rapidly once they get going. So the, the take home lesson was October, November is a great time to scatter California poppy seeds. Water each morning. Uh, water each morning until they come up. And uh, at that point, hopefully we'll be closer to normal rainfall uh, or the you know, temperatures will be cooler, might even be some overcast. So you won't have to be quite so attentive to the watering. But this is the time we do it here. Now I have a garden center and I sell California poppy seeds to people who are visiting Davis from all over the world. Uh, they come in, it's the one thing they wanna take home with them. And I finally have asked some of those folks when they plant them in much colder climates. And the answer is that they plant them in the spring and they bloom in the summer. So for us, it's something we plant in the fall, grows through the winter, blooms in the late winter, blooms in the spring, all the way into the early summer. You get lots of bloom all the way into June quite readily. They form pods. If you let those pods burst, each one will plant itself a couple thousand more seeds for you, and you're off and running. That's pretty much all you ever have to do to get California poppies established, as long as, as Lois said, you have bare soil, areas that are not covered with weeds or grassy stuff. And then if or you mulch, cut, no mulch. Yeah, you don't cut, don't top dress them like you would, you know, like take compost and cover them like you, you feel like you should do because you want to protect those little seeds. Um, and one thing we've found is the California poppy is technically kind of a short lived perennial rather than being a true annual. The plant will make it through the summer, it looks pretty rough. It especially comes through pretty well if you cut it back or mow it off, mow it very high to get all that leafy stuff off the top and protect the keep the crown from just getting engulfed by it and people who do that find that their plants will bloom again in the late summer start up in the late summer into the fall and the plant will go on and bloom for a couple of years uh, california transportation department will mow the weedy grasses along the the verges of the highway and when they do that very commonly up will pop some of the california poppies that were there and they'll bloom even midsummer so they can be a short-lived perennial and they'll reseed quite readily and naturalize once you get them going. The challenging part for some people can be getting them going because you have too much stuff growing. You have too much cover, too many plants already in that area for the seedlings to get a good stand. So for that, perhaps transplanting them out will be a better way to go than trying to direct seed them. You, we talk about poppies all the time. Do you want to talk about lupin? Because they're another California native that would be lovely to have in your yard if you could have them. They're a plant that establishes after an area has been exposed by fire or road cut or something like that. Uh, the lupins up in the coast range have been quite stunning in the spring after these major fires we've been having. What that does is it, it they have a very hard seed coat. So people who plant lupins without doing anything to the seed you do cover it, it's just like a normal seed compared to the poppy, but it's a hard seed coat and won't sprout unless you do something to mimic fire. So you can take a file and you can file it a little bit, you can soak it overnight. Uh, there's a variety of other things people do, but just basically get a little, little break going in that seed coat, then go ahead and plant them. I have attempted to grow lupins many times. 
Um, snails love lupin seedlings. I can tell you that from considerable experience. So if you've got a big problem with snails in your yard, lupins may be a real challenge for you. I have seen snails go around other plants to eat lupin seedlings. I've interplanted them with other things and gone out and found just the lupins eaten by the snails. So they have a very strong preference for them. Uh, so that may be a challenge for you. If that's an issue, you could use some of the organic snail bait like the iron phosphate materials, but that could be a challenge. But the main thing is they just won't sprout unless you do something to soften that seed coat. The simplest is just to soak the seed overnight before you plant it. Again, right now is a great time to put lupin seeds out here in California. So if someone were, were especially a little kid, were to say, okay, they come up after fires, I will mimic a fire in order to get my seeds ready. <laughs> don't throw them in the microwave. No, nope, that's that not fire. Them. Nope. And I don't think you should even take your little, you, you know, campfire popcorn popper and try and toast them. I, no, I, I would, don't I think that's a good a, idea. I would use a creme brulee torch and I would <laughs> pass quickly over them. We used to do this with tory pine seeds in Southern California because tory pine is a native species down there. And the seed will not sprout unless you've treated it with fire or it turns out smoke actually. Um, so what people would do is go put them, you know, scatter the seed in an area on their driveway, take a propane torch and very quickly pass over the seed, not long enough to, you know, cook it, but long enough to just basically rupture the seed coat a little bit. I would think that those little torches you use for creme brulee would be perfect for that. Uh, and it turns out it is an ingredient in smoke is a significant factor. So if you're into, um, EDU sites online and want to read about that, just uh, look up smoke activation of seed germination. You'll have a lot of fun. Um, right. You sure have a lot of a lot of obscure information in your brain, Don. So let's don't you have a creme brulee torch, Andy? I do not have a creme brulee torch. Now I have a heat gun for my artwork, but no, that's a little different. Okay, we got the public service announcement. I think this time we'll talk about the UC Cooperative Extension Master Gardeners of Yolo County. I think I sent you a schedule for them. Having yeah, you did. Then they're having October 29th, which is coming up real soon. Tomorrow, they're yeah. having a Zoom workshop. This is going to be Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. If you're listening to the show on Saturday, sorry, you missed it. Yep. Um, it is rain catchment and conservation, gray water, rainwater storage, and rain gardens. And the information on how to get onto these is, Don will give you in a minute, but here are they up. October 29th, November 5th. Winter Fruit Tree Care. Ooh, that sounds like a good one. Yeah. November 12th, Summer Vegetable Gardens in Retrospect. Now what? That's a good one. <laughs> and November 19th, Landscaping with Perennials. So, so you, the place that you go to find that connection information is where, Don? It's the pub public education link at the Yolo County Master Gardeners website, which is YOLOMG. YOLOMG.UCANR.EDU. You will find it if you just type Yolo County Master Gardeners into your Google search engine. It'll bring it up and look for that public education link. They always did a lot of workshops. And of course, they've all been canceled with the pandemic, but they started doing Zoom workshops. I was talking to one of the coordinators. He's saying they get 30 to 50 people uh, showing up on Zoom for these things, and they're going very, very well. And in fact, he said he was commenting, it's actually a lot easier than going out on a cold winter day to a, a site with fruit trees and showing people how to prune when it's 35 degrees. You can do it 
from his kitchen uh, and put up the information by PowerPoint. And so these Zoom workshops have become their, their method for getting the information out. They've canceled all their workshops, uh, you know, the in-person ones. They only have given the link for this particular one because each Zoom link I gather is unique. So uh, go to their page, public education, public-education at the Yellow County Master Gardeners website to look for those November upcoming events. And we'll try to keep you apprised of these. I think this is a great way to get the information out and um, probably actually broaden it to more people. And what we're finding with a lot of these people going to online options is there are people who couldn't make it to in-person meetings on a Saturday morning, but a Thursday afternoon Zoom meeting might be a great way to learn how to take care of your fruit trees in the winter on November 5th. So that's the so, Master Gardeners, yeah. So the October 29th one, Water Catchment and Conservation, Gray Water, Water, water Store. Uh, the actual name of that is now yeah. Saving Water for the Garden. Much yeah. better title. <laughs> Saving Water for the Garden. And that's something a lot of good designers are doing is figuring in how to keep rainwater on site rather than draining off into the storm drain system. Let it soak into the ground, water the big trees, you know, get, get water down into the groundwater again. Okay, we wanna talk about some of the great programming here at KDRT. And uh, there's a gentleman here named Preacher. It's his name, it's his nickname. It was given to him when he was a child, not because he pretended to preach, but he says, when I spoke, people would listen. I would sing and people would listen. Uh, Preacher does a, a show called Praise Time with Preacher. It's gospel music, it's here at KDRT. It's a very uplifting show, no matter what your uh, faith structure is. He believes gospel music is powerful, whether the listener is or is not Christian. Everyone can enjoy listening to gospel. It's uplifting, inspiring, sung with passion and belief from the artist, touching all who hear it in a good and heartfelt way. The aim of this show is to help listeners find what he believes, believes in everyone, a good spirit that drives us to be the best we can be. Praise Time with Preacher airs 4 p.m. on Tuesdays, 4 to 5 p.m., replays Fridays, 6 to 7 p.m., Sundays, 7 in the morning, and if you can't write that down too quickly enough, then head to cater.org and check the schedule tab. All right, now we had a whole series of things that we were gonna talk about, about ground covers. Yeah. Wait a minute, I got these in the wrong order. Darn, I thought I was so smart. Well, this came up originally on uh, nextdoor.com. Many of you are probably familiar with that particular site. It's a uh, Interesting. It always interests me that people will go to a site like that to ask gardening questions. That's kind of like asking randomly at the grocery store or asking at a cocktail party. But um, I'm on there on our local next door. And every now and then, if I see something that I think I might have a helpful answer for, I'll jump in. Not always. But the question was about ground covers for shady areas and um, uh, drought tolerant low ground cover, which can also tolerate partial sun. And the specific question. Uh, this person, since it wasn't directed to me, I won't say the name. I have read about Ruchia Nana, Dwarf Carpet of Stars. Anyone have any experience with it? So first of all, let's mention that one. Ruchia, R-U-S-C-H-I-A, is the latest direct marketing ground cover uh, plant. Uh, this has come up in the past over many years. I've, I could probably write a whole column on you know, the latest, greatest turf replacement, ground cover, whatever, Carapia a few years ago, um, Zoysia grass back in the day when, uh, when it was he heavily advertised in the parade magazine, the insert to the Sunday newspaper, it was gonna be the miracle lawn and so forth. And there's nothing wrong with most of these plants, but you need to realize it's just another option, it's not a miracle. 
And ruchia is a ice plant type ground cover. Okay, and it's moderately shade tolerant. It's definitely drought tolerant being a, an ice plant. Ice plant as a lawn substitute is not a great choice. You can't run on it much, you get slippery. Uh, you can't, and bear in mind that most of them have flowers that attract bees, which is great if you like to attract bees, but for walking across it, someone in your household has a bee allergy, you might want to, you know, think about something else. Uh, so, but this is one that's being marketed directly to the public. We went through this with that Kurapia ground cover, K-U-R-A-P-I-A. I'm a retailer, but I can't get it. You just get it from the same people I would get it from. They're selling direct to the public. Uh, the Arboretum, in the case of the Kurapia, became a licensed grower and sold it for a year or two at their sales. And I'm glad they did because now I have a fair number of customers that tried it. And uh, I know I'm getting off the specific one. We'll come back to the Ruchia. Okay. <laughs> and they planted it and they thought, oh my God, this thing is vigorous. You know, one single plant would go three, four or five feet in a single season. And if you planted it in your border, it would be climbing up and over other things and up into the junipers and up into the rose bushes. Um, so it was excessively vigorous is what many people found. As a lawn alternative mode, it was great because you could go down literally to 20% of the watering of a lawn and it still looked good enough. And if you gave it 50% of the watering of a lawn, it looked great. So we have a plant that had potential as a lawn alternative, except that just like Ruchia, Kurapia flowers all the time and attracts bees. So if you have that kind of a meadow look where you don't mind walking on maybe some step stones and with bees flying around your ankles, fine. But not something that the kids are gonna be, kids and dogs are gonna be playing on, particularly if someone in your family has a bee allergy. So it kind of came and went, and now that Ruchia is the latest one, there's nothing at all wrong with it. It's fine if you want to directly contact that company and order it and plant it. Um, it'll cover quickly, and it is drought tolerant, but it's basically just an ice plant. Ice plant, as uh, like um, Southern Californians are very familiar with ice plant ground covers. Caltrans has used millions of acres of different kinds of ice plant to cover slopes and so forth. Once established, they don't even need to be watered in many cases. But it wouldn't be my first choice as a something to cover a very large area, uh, if, especially if you're expecting to walk in that area. Is this one of those ice plants that if you were to walk across it, you'd leave brown footprints? No, you'd crush it a little bit, but it'll spring back up. I mean, a lot of the ice plants, there are delospermas, and, you know, we've been talking about plants that are more California, but delospermas grow uh, even in Denver. You know, they're very cold hardy. If you step on it, it'll flatten it and it'll pop back up. If you step on it repeatedly, like if the postman walks across it day after day, just as with your lawn, a path may develop there. It won't, won't come back that quickly, but most of them can take light traffic. And this is a key question that I have that every time someone walks in saying, we're looking for a lawn substitute, you know, it happened just a couple of weeks. So a really nice young lady with her little four-year-old boy holding her hand. And I looked at the boy and her and I said, well, this is why we use grass. <laughs> so it takes traffic better and it's easier to fix than any of these ground covers. And we can come back to that topic. But um, it, you can walk across it somewhat. It'll take it a few times. If you do it constantly, yes, you'll kind of wear out that area. So there was something in there that said, shade but tolerates partial sun now most of the times when i see ground cover things it says ground covers for sunny areas or ground covers good for the shade um so is, well, this, a, is this a range that a ground cover can be in one but okay in the other or i mean really so maybe tears i know sun will just kill it 
yeah, it's really important. It's a spectrum. And there's a handful of plants, like baby steers is a good example, it grows out right to the line of the sun and stops. Right. It will not take sun. Most other ground covers uh, will take a, a spectrum. And some of my quick answers to this particular question were Asian jasmine, as an example, the ground cover relative of star jasmine, basically never flowers. Australian violet, I think you've got that running all over your ear. I love that. Yeah, and it'll take sun. It's, you know, it's not super, super drought tolerant. It's one of those plants that wilts if it's very drought stressed. It tells you that you need to water, it pops right back up. Uh, ajuga, uh, I know that's grown all over the country. Ajuga, we always describe it as liking slightly drier shade. And so it's reasonably drought tolerant. Um, there's woody plant. Well, let's go through a couple of the others that are what I call herbaceous. Dwarf periwinkle, Vinca minor, you know, still one of the most popular ground covers for shade to partial sun. Even half day sun is fine. It even can take full sun, except if it's drought stressed at five o'clock in the afternoon on a day that's 105, it'll scorch and it'll look terrible. So we always suggest it for a little more shade. Um, one that I have established well under my big sycamore tree is the Campanula, the bellflower, Campanula porcharskiana. I wouldn't call it drought tolerant, but I only water every seven to 10 days. And if I go 10 days and it's 100 degrees, it wilts, but it recovers. So it's another one kind of like that Australian violet. Uh, one group to look at if you like the ice plant is the sedums, which are quite tolerant of a range of conditions and quite cold hardy for succulents. And some of them, like sedum brevifolium, run all over the place. I mean, they'll, it'll function a lot like your Australian violets, just fill in wherever it has that niche and is able to do so. And then there's one other category of ground covers for shade, which are woody plants that grow in a prostrate manner. And um, one, for example, it's a native, native California anyway, is um, Catalina Perfume, kind of an odd name, which is a ribes. Ribes by Vernifolium. That was my area of specialty when I was training to be a docent, ribes. So what, ma what makes it unique in the genus ribes? Oh, it's an evergreen. Yeah, all the others it's are- It's the only different. evergreen in California that ribes in California. Or they know, yeah, and, and there's all the others are more upright shrubs, and it's a it hugs the ground. Now, like a lot of these ground hugging shrubs, I planted it years ago in one part of my property where it's still there. Years later, uh, it's under a bunch of berries. I go in and chop them all out, dig them up. Oh, there it is. It's still plugging along just fine. Sometimes it will throw out an upright shoot more than a ground covery shoot, and you may need to prune that out. But otherwise, it's a it's a woody plant that hugs the ground. And there's another one uh, very similar to that is the creeping Mahonia, which mm -hmm. is now Barberry genus, but we'll still call it Mahonia. Mahonia repens. You see repens, R-E-P-E-N-S in the name that means creeping. Mahonia repens is a ground cover form of Mahonia and it still has the pretty yellow flowers in the winter and a few little berries, not many to speak of, but it, it slowly spreads and makes a ground cover about a foot high. And I have it where it is in ranging from full sun to full shade and doing equally well in both situations. Mm -hmm. And I can't speak about that last one, but the ribes is yes. so loosely, uh, it, it, how shall I put that? It's loose enough that the little branchlets off the tree above it that fall down, they just disappear. They yeah. just fall right down, down and, and disappear. It has sure. tiny little berries that are really cute tiny little star-shaped purple flowers that are gorgeous. I would say it's a lovely plant. Most people don't notice the flowers, but the hummingbirds sure do. And uh, it's one of those really, and it's, I water mine where it is once a month, fully oh, established yeah. plant. It's under a big old oak tree that's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. It's an oak that has narrow leaves, the chestnut oak, so the leaves just filter down into it. So it doesn't become a maintenance hassle. Mm -hmm. So that's one possibility. Of course, you're not gonna walk on that. 
No. So that would be more for a part of the landscape that you're not actually going to be exploring through. Then the next question that came up in response to this was, are any of these native to the valley? <laughs> and the answer to that is basically no, because the valley, now the valley, for those of you listening elsewhere, we're referring, I think, to the Sacramento Valley, which is the northern part of the Great Central Valley, which is made up of the Sacramento Valley and the San Joaquin Valley. Enormous, enormous area, mostly valley grassland plant community here in our area. So a native ground cover here would be bunch grasses. Uh, there aren't, most of the things that you see sold in nurseries in Sacramento, Davis, Woodland area as California natives are indeed California natives, but they're not native here. Uh, they're native to the oak woodlands, which are up in the coast range or the foothills. They're native to perhaps the chaparral parts of Southern California. All those ones you're thinking of, Ceanothus, Manzanitas, things like that. We have a Ceanothus species that's native to Yellow County. It's one of the less, I'll say, interesting ones. We have a Manzanita species, but it's not the ones people are buying at garden centers. We're in an area where there'd be bunch grasses, little wildflowers, California poppies, and big valley lupin. Lots of lupin. Yeah, things like that. And so there's no ground cover that meets these criteria, except perhaps to seek out some bunch grass and plant that. I did, however, mention to this person, because I get this question a lot, if you're really interested in California native and you're listening anywhere, and you're trying to look for the native plant option for, um, for your particular area, wherever it is, go to calscape.org, calscape.org, which is a... Um, Website managed by the California Native Plant Society, I believe. Let me double check that. You can type in your zip code. You can search all the usual search field criteria, sun, shade, tree, shrub, and so on. And up will pop a bunch of suggestions for where you live. And I find it incredibly useful because people will ask me, we're talking about shade trees or something, and they'll ask me, are any of these native? And I say, well, here, let me show you what the actual native trees are here. And they'll realize, uh, sorry to say, most of them are not things you'd want in your backyard necessarily, unless you have a rather unique kind of landscape. They're things like cottonwood and stream willows and uh, black walnut and the California sycamore and you know things like that. They're not the things you're thinking of. And the same thing goes with ground covers and shrubs and, and low grasses. It's an interesting topic and uh, they are a good starting point if you're interested in native plants for your particular landscape. And then I still recommend highly the website of our friends over at Hedgerow Farms, which is a company that specializes in revegetation with native grasses. This is a specialized landscape design approach. Their website is incredibly useful, Hedgerow Farms, near Woodland, hedgerowfarms.com. And you can look at the grass seeds that would be native here and so forth. But uh, the list of native ground covers for dry shade native to the Sacramento Valley grassland plant community is a very short list indeed. So we tend to go outside of the native plants in that situation and look to the ornamentals from other regions of the world that have a similar, what we call Mediterranean rainfall climate, places where it's cool, wet winters and dry summers like the Mediterranean, like Australia, like South Africa, parts of South America and so forth. And I will say that most people who live in a house in Davis or anywhere nearby, are not having a yard which is the natural rainfall pattern. Nope. I would say 99% of the people <laughs> water in the summer, which as, as you all know, we don't get water. We don't get yeah. rain for months and months and months and months. So Oops. if you're planting something that is 
only going to be in our natural pattern of waterfall. You're going to have a dry brown uh, lawn or whatever, because that's the way Davis was. I mean, green bushes, but brown grasses. As most of you know, I live on a farm and it's about 13 acres. And when we bought the place, we realized that one area was still largely native grasses. Uh, it's about an acre of the property. And I've worked very hard actually to keep it that way, uh, which means I have to mow out the non-native grasses ahead of the native ones so that they, you know, the native ones get a chance to seed and hold their own. I have to keep the mustard down in that area. I don't irrigate it at all. During the summer, there are trees on the perimeter that I irrigate individually, but I don't water that area. So it is dry dirt in July, August, September right now. If I walked out there, uh, there's a handful of things that I'm looking at going, you better get that under control or else it'll take over. It is native bunch grasses and California native grasses. There are perennial native grasses, and that's the information you can get from the Hedgerow Farms website and learn about it and look at the price of the seed. And it will be a little bit of a sticker shock there because collecting seed of native grasses is a specialized nursery operation. Um, I do find when I'm talking to people, they have a much broader term for native. They just mean native somewhere in California or the Southwest and also adaptable to low water. Well, okay, that gives you more to work with. And so the next question that came up with, what about ground covers for the sun? Okay, um, that's a much longer list. Actually, you have far more choices for the sun than you do for the shade. And I just went through a few of them. The, some of the fescue grasses there, you can plant fescue that's native or you can buy some of the non-native types. You can still do that Asian jasmine, that one will work. There's a ground cover that's from Australia that they've used in the Australia part of the arboretum that people might wanna look at called the Myoporum parvifolium. Uh, it's a very vigorous spreading ground cover. If you want a California native, there's ground cover forms of coyote bush. Uh, again, we're getting to woody plants here. Very popular these days is this Daimondia ground cover, which makes a, a low silver carpet um, and very pretty, although there's a lot of weeding involved in getting that one established. And there's many, many others, including all the ice plants and the sedums and woody plants like rosemary. I've used snow and summer on part of my property. Um, some people are buying these trailing lantanas, which are hardy here, so you can plant them and just let them cover an area. They look a little rough in the winter, but they bloom basically March through December. Uh, and those are very attractive, the purple or the newer white forms, even junipers. And, and if you want a California native, uh, the Ceanothus, Yankee Point is one of the most adaptable Ceanothus I've ever grown. It takes to the valley conditions very, very well. It gets about two feet high if you let it, but it spreads out eight feet from a single plant. And I have plants on my property, one of which I didn't water at all this summer, now that it's been in the ground for four or five years, and it's fine. And the other planting that I have, I only watered three times total during the course of the whole summer. So that's a native, coastal native, but a California native, that gives you those beautiful blooms in the spring and functions as a ground cover. Again, a woody plant, so you're not going to walk on it. And I usually suggest sort of plot this out. And look at where in the whole area you're actually going to walk or play or sit or whatever it is. Maybe think about some hardscape for those areas like flagstone or a little concrete pad or something, or even just decomposed granite or fine bark or whatever works in your situation. In the less traffic areas, look at some of those woody low spreaders that we've talked about. And in the areas where people are going to walk a little bit more occasionally, then go ahead and use some of these flat growing ground covers. But for where a kid's going to play, that brings us back to grass. It can be an unmowed grass. It can be a meadow-like grass. I have about a half acre of just 
fescue unmowed on my property. Kids always love to run out on it. The dogs love it. It's very informal looking. Uh, and that's a great look if you happen to want something where they can just run through it and you know, you're not gonna play croquet. You're not gonna play any kind of game that requires a even ground surface, but it's sort of like an unmowed lawn. It's very, very pretty. And these are much lower water using grasses. You come back to grass if it's a use area because grass can restore itself quickly, recover quickly from both drought and traffic. And it's really easy to patch it. You just throw some more seed in right now. Great time to do it. I have one customer who's been sending me pictures for about three years. She did the creeping thyme experiment. She did her whole backyard, about 800 square feet, I think it was, in woolly thyme. And I'm always really skeptical about this because I've, I've seen it go this way exactly as happened to her. The first year it was cool, crept in. She had to weed a lot, but it filled in. The second year picture is the kind you see in Sunset Magazine. It was a perfect carpet of silver fuzzy foliage. It was quite beautiful and she was very happy with it. Third year, uh-oh, part of it started to die out. We went back and forth about how she was watering it, overwatering there. These ground cover times and things like them are pretty prone to the water molds we talk about all the time, the phytophthora. So she changed her watering, but weeds came into the bare area and she sent me an email, I think it was July this year. Well done, my creeping time experiment is over and it's officially a failure. <laughs> the whole 800 square foot area there's a couple patches of creeping time still doing fine mysteriously and the rest of it has basically died out and spurge and all the typical weeds that fill in have become a problem in that area and she's looking at it going okay now what now let's just start over with something else probably going to go back to grass honestly <laughs> so her question was what's the lowest water grass we can talk about and there are there's some very low water turf blends out there but uh, it was it was useful because i have pictures of the different stages of this. And I, as I joke, that second year, that's the one you always see in the garden magazine. Look at this lovely yard with a ground cover of creeping thyme and how elegant it is. And it was, it was quite lovely. They tend not to be that reliable after a couple of years. One of the things that you didn't mention, and, and I'm not sure if maybe it's not low enough to be considered a ground cover, though it is a prostrate form, is uh, some of the epilobium. That's a California native, isn't it? California fuchsia yes, epilobium? Yeah, the uh, California fuchsia, old name Zauchneria. We all like that one. It's been moved to the genus Epilobium. And it is. It's a ground covering herbaceous plant. Um, at most of them. Some of them are more upright, but generally they, they trail. Uh, the winter appearance can be rough. And so I don't really think of it as a full-on ground cover in this sense of replacing a whole big area with it. That would be spectacular if you had a very large area in one of the cultivars of California fuchsia, which is the common name. And be aware when you look for them, there's probably 15 varieties on the market. They range in how silver or gray the leaves are, how big the leaves are, and most especially how closely they hug the ground. And they all creep outward by these sort of short rhizomes. And one of them, the Arboretum was selling for quite a while, is a rather tall plant. It's two, two and a half, three feet when it's in bloom. The customer who bought it thought it was a ground cover and kept sending me pictures going, now what do I do? And I finally said, just interplant some of the other kind. <laughs> just live with it and go get the right one now and interplant that like Eteri or, or Everett's Choice or something like that and put that in. That'll hug the ground the way you were expecting. But you know, look at the label before you put it in the ground. They do vary in their growth habit. I really like those. And I especially like the upright kind. I, I have both, both. Yeah several kinds, I should say, because it is the best hummingbird plant and oh, yeah. it goes and goes and goes. And so the hummingbirds love it. And even when other things stop, 
it's still there. It's, if, it's you had, if you had that Ribes viburnifolium that we yep. talked about, if you planted the, the California gooseberry, which blooms even earlier than the Ribes viburnifolium, mm -hmm. and then you had the California fuchsia, had some of our Western columbine planted in the light, brighter shade edges of the, of the planting, you would have hummingbird food from February until almost December. Then all you need to do is figure out what you're going to do for January. And there's actually a current that blooms then, the chaparral current, which blooms in the middle of the winter. So you Ridgeron? can have a What about a Ridgeron? Uh, Would that take the winter? The Ridgeron, you're talking about the daisy? The, yeah. Um, usually winter appearance is a little rough, but it certainly is a good one to add. Uh, but well, the then one how that about would, the bush daisy? Would that do it? Right. Yes, Uriops, Uriops pectinatus. Not native, but a wonderful plant and gives blooms, bright yellow blooms in the middle of the winter. So there's just like six plants right there. It would give you hummingbird food year round. And I'll mention that chaparral current one more time. That's Ribes malvaceum. It is a native and it blooms. I have pictures of mine blooming in December. And my California fuchsia would be blooming almost into December. So you'd cover the whole year with just a handful of plants, most of them native somewhere in California. Be careful of the Ribes. If you have <laughs> one that is not the evergreen current, yeah. you may have a variety that goes dormant in the summer. Yep. And, and, you know, it's like people, they plant a plant, it's a beautiful bush, it's got leaves, it's got flowers in the winter, it's doing everything. And all of a sudden, it looks like it died. Middle of right. summer, it looks like it died. People rip it out. They don't realize that it's a summer estivation. If you water it, it'll stay nice looking. The mm -hmm. one that... I'm um, trying to think of any species that would look good through. Well, actually, I have Ribes aureum, which is a native with a golden flower, which right. looks good if you water it, goes dormant, goes dry if you don't. So try watering it. But um, we also want to mention that fuchsia flowered gooseberry. The name is appropriate. It's about the spiniest plant I've ever sold, but it is a Ribes that blooms in the late winter. So, so, so the difference, remember, I told you then my dose and training, Ribes was my focus. And the difference between a current and a gooseberry, they're both in the ribes family. Yep. Gooseberries will goose you. Yes. They're the ones with, with thorns and currants don't. Staff does not like it when I bring in California gooseberry. <laughs> you have to find a place on a bench for them where you won't back into them by accident. Yeah. Okay, next question. All right, so we did the ground covers for the sun. We did the ground covers for the shade. We said um, we got sun and shade things. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. Yep, so covered. I think that we are down to what plants you always have to identify for people every year. Well, because yeah, people I've, bring in plants for you and they say, what's this? Yes, this comes up um, and my staff has to do this every time. And it's funny how often they come up on various uh, um, websites as well. You'll go on to plant identification, Phytolacca americana, the pokeweed. I tell them that uh, sometime around May, you ought to just put a picture of that, pin it to the top of the plant identification forum with the identification there. Because it pops up all over the country. It's very interesting. It looks like something you might have planted. <laughs> the blooms are pretty and they're followed by these lovely berries. And its common name is pokeweed. Um, very poisonous. So that's one important thing to know. But that's one that pops up all the time. And, and I just, again, a friend of mine who lives up in Michigan, they're out on a hike and she sent me a note and said, Don, is this rhubarb? <laughs> I said, no, that's pokeweed. Um, both plants are poisonous, but I'm way more worried about the pokeweed than I am about the rhubarb. So I hope you didn't eat any. Uh, it is interestingly, pokeweed, 
I should say this, is eaten at certain stages with certain proper preparations, boiling and draining and boiling and draining and so forth. Don't eat poke salad without knowing how to prepare it. But pokeweed is an increasing weed along riparian areas, certainly here in the Sacramento area. Birds love the fruit. I had one pop up on my property. I'm out in the middle of nowhere. I don't know exactly where it came from, but I, I know who brought it here. And, Somebody uh, flew overhead and had to take a leap. Lots of places for them to land and it ate it somewhere. And I look at it and I thought, this is really pretty. I like, nope, take it out now while you still can, because they can be, they are really increasing and they become quite persistent. Is it purple? Uh, the fruit is purple. The plant has a red stem that's striking against the green leaves. And so it's a very attractive, tall plant, grows rapidly. And, uh, and pokeweed is, uh, is, is, once you've seen it, you'll recognize it, but it's one of those plants we all have to identify multiple times every year. How tall um, does it get? Oh, it varies depending on, on moisture and soil richness. There's plants in Michigan that she took a picture of look like they're about three feet tall. I've seen it six feet tall with no problem. And, uh, and it has these fruit in long clusters, racemes, I guess they are, and uh, very attractive. So um, again, you might want to pull it out before it goes to seed. The second one I should mention that we have to identify quite regularly is, hey, this tree came up on my property. It's growing really fast, but it's kind of pretty. What is it? Elanthus altissima, commonly called the tree of heaven or the tree that grows in Brooklyn is, a, I guess, a play or a song that was based on it. Uh, tree of heaven is all over the United States. It was intentionally brought in as a urban tree and it was brought in because it grew fast. Well, indeed it does. And it uh, grows very tall and you have male and female trees. The males have pollen for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and it stinks, it smells funny. And the female set seed, which scatters far and wide. I have one on my property and the nearest tree that would have been the source of that is about a mile away. And that is the kind of thing that happens with Elanthus altissima. The leaf looks just like a walnut leaf or a pistache leaf. It's one of those compound leaves that is branched into little leaflets. The simplest diagnostic or identification criteria for an Elanthus is crush a leaf, it smells really funky. It smells like weird compost with peanut butter in it. It's one of those kind of leaves. <laughs> and uh, that'll tell you right away that you have an Elanthus. And if the next question is, oh, should I leave it? It seems like it's growing really well. I would say, please don't. It's a scourge wherever it grows. It's one of those weed trees. It's very problematic. I've heard a variety of stories about how it got to California, coming out along the railroad tracks back in the 19th century, brought by Chinese immigrants because it's considered a good luck tree, I guess. Um, it's all over the gold country. It's certainly all over our side of the valley. And it looks like a sumac. It's another tree that it kind of resembles, but that crushing the leaf will tell you right away. So it's a tough one to get rid of. It can grow 10 to 12 feet in a single season. I've been battling this one tree on my property for over a decade. Two others that come up a lot, Duranta repens, which is called sky flower, is blooming now. It has really pretty golden berries, sometimes called golden dewdrop or pigeon berry. Uh, apparently quite invasive in Australia and New Zealand. Be aware, it's very pretty. It's one of those woody plants that we grow like a vine. So it's not really a vine, but you can tie it up on a fence. It's very lovely. The berries are poisonous. So if you've got young kids around, you might want to be aware of that one. And right now in Davis, if you've gone to the train station, you've seen the one that we identify almost every single day at our nursery now, which is Keselpinia pulcarima, Mexican bird of paradise bush. There's a Big planning of it right near where the Amtrak station is. They put them in about, oh, seven, eight years ago, whenever it was, they did that whole remodel there. 
And uh, late summer, early fall, they start blooming with these big showy bird of paradise type flowers, uh, a bright orange with yellow, yellow components. And people want to know over and over again what this is and whether they can get a hold of it. Uh, Mexican bird of paradise is a shrub that grows quite readily, very drought tolerant. Anyone down the southwest knows this plant very well. When we drove Route 66, my kids and I over to New Mexico, every gas station had one. I mean, they were around all the trailer parks. So uh, that kind of thing is extremely tough and adaptable. Not common in the trade, in the nursery trade. And people go, why? It's so pretty. It's one of those plants that grows too fast in a pot. It grows so mm -hmm. fast, it gets root bound before it does anything attractive. And uh, so it outgrows the containers very quickly. On the plus side, it's very, very easy from seed. So if you're in Davis and you really want that plant, wait till those pods start to split, take some of the seeds, soak them. It's a bean, so you need to soak them overnight to soften the seed coat like the lupins we talked about earlier, and then plant it and they'll come up pretty quickly and they're quite easy to grow. If you don't wanna do that, bring them to me. I'll start them for you. <laughs> sun, shade, height? Sun is best. Um, full sun is fine. Uh, hot sun is great. They grow in New Mexico and Arizona and, and parts of Mexico. Uh, drought tolerant, and it's a shrub to about six feet, roughly. And and does it bloom only in October, or is it like it blooms, winter, or what? See, people first started asking in late August, uh, September, October, November, so it's a late summer and fall bloomer in this area. Yeah, really showy flower, very, very flamboyant, kind of a sparse open shrub, takes a little clipping and pruning, but if you've got a low water landscape, it would fit in beautifully. You know, I think we have a couple of quickies to get to. Uh, this is October, almost yes. Halloween. And what can we still plant now? Veggies, flowers, colorful cups. Let's start with the flowers. Flowers, you can plant pansies, violas, snapdragons, calendula, dianthus, which are the Chinese pinks, uh, cyclamen, um, primroses, if you can find them. It's kind of interesting that primroses have sort of fallen out of favor with the growers for a variety of reasons. They're doing more cyclamen, less primroses. Okay, well, that's fine. Um, sweet alyssum can go in any time of year. That's something you can plant right now. But really the focus in most garden centers, appropriately, is on pansies and violas because they give lots of bloom. They're easy to grow. In the case of the violas, they can even take some shade. You know, they're really best in full sun, but they have a little more rambling growth habit and people are kind of used to that. They'll bloom almost anywhere. Uh, the Johnny Jump Ups are really cool, the little flowered ones. Uh, and then snapdragons, there's been kind of a revolution in the breeding world on snapdragons. There's a lot of very dwarf ones now. We've mentioned these before, floral carpet, Tahiti, snaptinis. Those are the ones we're bringing in right now. They're called snaptinis. These are little bushes. I mean, they get a foot by a foot. They bloom constantly. They're in bloom when they come in. They bloom all the way into June. I've had them bloom right through the summer for me. And uh, they don't need staking because they're just a little miniature snapdragon. So they're day neutral, which means they'll bloom regardless of the day length, whereas older snapdragons were, were day length induced for bloom. These are day neutral. And uh, the plants stay nice and compact. They really do need full sun. So that's best for snapdragons, whereas your pansies, viola, cyclamen are okay with some shade. Again, probably better in full winter sun. And I do want to focus people on the one easy daisy for the winter, aside from the one that Lois mentioned earlier, the, the golden bush daisy, which is a shrub, the paludosum daisy, which is a little white daisy, chrysanthemum relative, blooms from now till May, it makes again a tight little mound, looks like a little bush, but it's an annual, but it blooms so constantly from now through into the late part of the spring. It's one of the easiest filler plants in around these other annuals that I've just mentioned. Paludosum daisy, little white daisies that grow practically anywhere. Again, 
full sun is best for those. And bringing us right back to the top of the hour, uh, don't forget your California puppies. Now, what I like to do is buy the seed now and then watch the weather. And just before we're going to have a rain, go out and sprinkle them. And yeah. then I don't have to do hardly any work at all because the rainfall dampens them, they sprout and they grow. The first significant rainstorm heading our way is a great time to scatter wildflower seeds of any kind and also grass seed in the thin areas of your lawn. In your vegetables, you can still plant broccoli. So buy them now. I'm saying buy them now and keep yep, those yep. seeds. Yep. The, the seeds will store for a while, won't they? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mostly year round in those cases, but have them on hand. So when the storm is coming, okay. you need to run out like a like a demon and scatter seeds wherever the rain is about to hit. You have okay. plenty of time to plant vegetables. We've got a lot of new people in the vegetable world, you know, that just started this year and uh, they're coming in and seeing all these vegetables we're selling and wondering why we're selling lettuce because they're sure it's going to freeze. Nope, we can grow uh, broccoli, rob, uh, broccolini, asper brock, all the leafy greens, lettuce, arugula, Swiss chard. You can grow beets for the greens and then enjoy the beets themselves later in the spring. Onions will be coming into nurseries in the first week and second week of November as bare root bundles. That's the easiest way to grow them. Bok choy, kale, all that crowd. Spinach is, uh, oddly enough, this year's, this season's uh, shortage. In the spring, it was basil. Right now, it's spinach. Nobody's got spinach. Well, you know, grow it from seed if you want to. Uh, there's still time to plant the seed on a lot of these things. We can plant leafy greens right through the winter. So you should be able to go into a garden center anytime now through February and find something to plant in your vegetable garden. We're, we're backing off of the big headed things, you know, your Romanesco broccoli and the Brussels sprouts that need a big substantial plant to get going and sustain the flowering part that we eat. But the parts where you're just picking off the leaves, like Swiss chard, I mean, I'm looking out my window at a three gallon pot that I put three Swiss chard plants in and there's about eight leaves I could pick off right now and cook tonight and still half the plant of each, it would still be there to put out some more for me. So the way people use these, and this is something I've been explaining fairly repeatedly, so I think we've got a lot of novice gardeners this season, you don't go out and cut off the whole head of lettuce, you, you can if you want, but with these leafy types, you just pull off the outer leaves, take a bowl, break off the outer leaves of the spinach and the bok choy and the lettuce and the kale and put them until you've got enough in a bowl and the plant will continue growing. You don't need to cut it off. You can let it continue to grow right through the winter. We don't get cold enough here to damage any of the things I just talked about. And the one other thing you can put in right now is, is peas, which you can plant either direct seed pretty quickly because the soil is going to get pretty cold soon or buy little starter packs of, of peas at garden centers. Back to your leafy green thing. Um, some plants are, are uh, delicately rooted. That is to say, they're not really well connected between the, the, the stalk and the root. So right. if I go out on my lettuce and I tug to pull a lettuce leaf off, isn't that just going to rip the root out? Wouldn't I be better off snipping it with scissors? You, you can snap it off carefully, but I think that kitchen scissors are a better way to go. Yes. Okay. So we're snipping off a leaf at a time, yeah. not cutting down the whole plant, but also not pulling the pulling it out of the ground. You can plant as many as 30 or 40 individual plants of lettuce, spinach, kale, all these smaller leafy greens in a barrel or something like that. And then just strategically remove leaves to keep them all so they're slightly separated and they'll keep growing right on through until April. Cool. Salad in a bowl. All right. So I'm going to read the question that we got from Rebecca, and we'll be giving this some thought because I think this is a great topic for expanding on next time, and I'll point you towards a couple of resources first. Rebecca is new to living on an acre, 
which has lots of tree cover, mostly all evergreen in zone 9B, which is where we are roughly, in the Sierra foothills. Are there any plants that will thrive under the trees and also give additional privacy in a few years? I'm hoping to just block a few areas, not create a full living fence. And so Rebecca's looking for, I would say in that case, evergreen shrubs or small trees that would give some privacy. Um, first of all, I would be useful to know in answering that what the evergreen trees are that you're dealing with, whether you mean conifers or live oaks, because that'll make a difference in what we would talk about. So you might want to go take a couple pictures of the types of trees that are on the property if you haven't gotten them identified yet. And at some point you might want to get a soil test done just to determine whether there's any nutrient issues that you would need to deal with. And think about how you're going to irrigate, because an acre is a big area. I talk to a lot of people, you know, most of my customers live in normal houses and normal yards, which means quarter acre if they're lucky. Uh, watering is a pretty simple thing. I live on a larger property. I talk to people on rural properties all the time and I'm using drip for everything. I have thousands of feet of drip tubing on my property and I also use impulse or so-called rainbird sprinklers at times to irrigate larger areas like, for example, the, the grass meadow that we talked about earlier. And so look at, think about how you're likely to irrigate these new plantings, how simple that's going to be uh, in my case, they're just hooked up to a hose. The drip lines are very simple to manage, but I manage them personally. So if they're gonna go on a timer, that's another issue. And are there any trees that we need to be careful around? This is probably the most important question. Do you have any large heritage oaks on the property that we definitely want to plant very carefully underneath, if at all? Or are these mostly live oaks and, and conifers of various types that wouldn't mind a change in irrigation nearby? So there's some key questions. And then you might head over to that website that I mentioned earlier in the show, calscape.org, and look at some of the natives for your zip code and see if any of them interest you. Jot them down, send them over to davisgardenshow at gmail.com. We can talk about those specifically. So that might give us the ability to answer your question in more detail and get you started on some homework. All right. Well, if you do want to send us a question, you can always email us at davisgardenshow at gmail.com. And if you want to listen to the archives of our show, you can go to our website, which has occasionally have pictures too. And that is at davisgardenshow.com or you can go to cater.org and it archives there as well. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California. Uh -huh.